Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 684 of the podcast and it is Sunday the 9th of April 2023 as I record this. In today's show I'm talking to Merrin Glover about writing nature memoir, writing sense of place, the line between travel, adventure and nature writing, as well as how Merrin dealt with her publisher going under and the challenges of writing a book based around another writer. Merrin also has a lovely, relaxing voice, so I hope you enjoy our chat coming up in the interview section. In publishing and book marketing news, well, big news this week because Kobo has launched Kobo Plus in the US and the UK, giving book lovers unlimited access to hundreds of thousands of ebook and audiobook titles for a monthly subscription fee. Kobo Plus is an all-you-can-read subscription service that has been available in selected regions since 2017. Subscribers pay a flat monthly fee to read and listen to unlimited books for as long as they are enrolled in the programme. Authors and publishers are paid based on a revenue share model. And of course, subscription programmes, nothing new. But the big thing with Kobo is you do not have to be exclusive, unlike other programmes one might mention. So you can be in Kobo Plus as well as sell everywhere else. And yes, I have all my books in Kobo Plus. So if you are uh, reading on Kobo, you can get my uh, ebooks and many of my audiobooks there too. And the ebook plus the audiobook subscription is cheaper than KU plus Audible. So it might even take some market share from KU, which is interesting. Kobo also accepts AI narrated audiobooks, which means those can be included in the subscription model. This expansion brings Kobo Plus to 10 regions now, Australia, Belgium, Canada, France, Italy, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Portugal, the United Kingdom and the United States. And also Kobo has partnerships with uh, companies in many countries, including Walmart in the USA, which uh, where they sell Kobo readers. And of course, now um, people can get the Kobo subscription. So that is awesome news. And you can just, uh, you're automatically opted in if you use that checkbox on your Kobo Writing Life platform, which is what I have, or go in and have a look. So yes, go to kobo.com forward slash writing life if you want to publish direct with Kobo and you can opt into Kobo Plus. You can also opt in if you publish through some of the other distributors. So while that is awesome news, there is some bad news this week in that Amazon is closing Book Depository. And this also comes after layoffs last year that impacted the devices and books businesses. And also on the heels of the end of magazine and newspaper subscriptions through Kindle Newsstand, uh, which also included print subscriptions. And from what people have said, they're trying to move these publications to Kindle Unlimited or Prime Reading. And yeah, I mean, essentially, these three things have impacted quite a lot of people's business models. The uh, book depository had free international shipping. And so a lot of um, publishers were using it as a retail angle to get better shipping deals. And of course, now with that ending, that will not be available. So all of these things, and also with the newsstand, I've read that some people are moving their publications onto things like Kickstarter, crowdfunding for comics, um, or they're going to have to sell direct or find a new model. So yeah, a reminder once again to look at your author business. How would you be impacted if Amazon decided to change a service that you use? Or if any of these services change services that we use, which of course is is pretty much everything. Uh, You know, if one of the services changed, then we have to change our business models along with them. And I I mean, I've seen quite a lot of people saying, oh no, no, they shouldn't be allowed to do that with Book Depository. It's like they own the business. They can do whatever they like with the company, uh, which is... (laughs) 
<laughs> essentially what about the control that you have when you own a company. And for me, I wasn't particularly using Book Depository for anything, although I suppose people could have ordered my books on Book depository. But equally, like I've said many times, I'm trying to build up my direct to consumer business on my Shopify store, uh, creativepenbooks.com, just in case you missed that before. (laughs) Right. So since I have to mention AI in every show at the moment, this week, I wanted to refer you to a couple of resources. There's a Moonshots and Mindsets podcast episode with Peter Diamandis and Imad Mostak, who's the CEO of Stability AI. He's also British, so I'm pretty, pretty, uh, I like hearing from him because mostly we hear from a lot lot of Americans. So I like hearing from Imad. I also think he's got a very nuanced take on the pros and cons of things. And of course, he really is a fan of open source AI. They also talk about why things are going to speed up even more in six months time when a new kind of chip comes on the market. So I find that very interesting and want us to be prepared for that. Um, You know, the changes are not slowing down. (laughs) What's interesting, I think, is the news media, you might have seen a kind of flurry of attention and then it sort of disappeared again. But that's not what's happening on the AI scene. I I read a lot of the AI news and things, things are changing, you know, almost every single day and just be careful of what you're saying um, if you're commenting or I've seen people on social media saying things that are wrong for example AI still can't get hands right on the generative images that is from again a previous model so um, if you're now using mid-journey version 5 for example hands are fine (laughs) so yeah things are changing all the time but in saying that I've also been listening to future proof Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation by Kevin Roos. And I read this when it first came out a couple of years ago. It certainly influenced my attitude towards this idea of doubling down on being human, which is at the core of it. But I'm listening to it now again. And although it doesn't include the latest AI information, it is more relevant now than ever, I think. So that's Future Proof by Kevin Roos. Great book. I'm also starting to read books on curiosity, and I'll give you some recommendations once I've been through a few of them. But the more I play with GPT-4, the more I think curiosity is going to be the biggest superpower as these tools progress and the quality of the questions that you ask. And some are calling that prompt engineering, but it's basically about coming up with what you're interested in and then following the strands of curiosity with questions. And you can really delve deep into various topics. um, And as uh, chat GPT plugins arrive, we're going to have more nuanced access into various areas to delve more deeply and then leap into new areas. So yeah, curiosity, questioning, doubling down on being human, these are all soft skills, I guess one would, would call them. Um, and you're going to need to know what you want I think that's that's what's so funny. Everyone's like, oh, wow, you can pretty much do whatever you want. It's like, well, you have to know what you want. <laughs> that is an interesting question. So in my personal update uh, this week on the blog, I shared the tools I use in my writing business. And the, the list was longer than expected, to be honest. <laughs> it covers writing, publishing, marketing, and the various tools I use to run the back-end business side, banking and um, accounting and that's kind of, that kind of thing. So that is on the creativepen.com blog and links in the show notes as ever if you want to see the tools and services I use in my author business. And the reason I've done that is because I'm speaking at London Book Fair next week. As this goes out, it will be next week. And uh, I'm, I'm on a panel on the uh, tech, how technology helps authors. <laughs> and I was like, I really need to put down all the tools I use. And essentially, the premise being it is leverage. So I run my multi six figure business with I'm the only employee, and I use a lot of technology. So people are like, Oh, how do you get so much done? I was like, Well, I use technology. <laughs> Uh, yeah there you go that's pretty much how I do it so you can have a look at that if you're interested in some of the tools I also have been doing some writing sessions at my local cafe on catacomb which is in the very messy chaotic stage of discovery uh, I, I have my monster um, and I really have to work out how to kill the monster because that's what happens in monster books <laughs> 
<laughs> so I'm actually having a lot of fun with that. I've also been working really hard on my Shopify store. So last year I did a episode on the minimum viable store, but of course I have now been adding to my minimum viable store and it's a lot more developed these days if you haven't visited it, creativefanbooks.com. Uh, so I've added photos to all the paperbacks. So you now know it's a paperback. Um, whereas some people were a bit confused by a digital mock-up of a paperback. So now I've taken loads of pictures of the book and, and um, books. And I have a lot of books. So even that has taken a long time. I've also set up bundles and book stacks. So there are loads of deals and that's for print books as well as ebooks and audio. So definitely go and have a look at that. It's linked also from thecreativepen.com. And I've set up a special discount to encourage you to buy direct um, or buy again if you enjoyed it the first time. So you can use discount code PODCAST15, all caps, PODCAST15 at check out, which will give you 15% off any of the books, digital, print, bundles, individuals, ebook, audiobook, print books, valid for one purchase per customer. So buy multiple books in one purchase if you want to get that discount for more stuff. And yeah, that's for print as well as digital. Um, yes, you do have to pay for shipping because I am not Amazon. <laughs> Also, pilgrimage is available there in all the formats from the Kickstarter. Um, so again, that is podcast15, all caps, on creativepenbooks.com. Any issues or questions, email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com. Also, a really cool integration feature with Instagram is that if you tag a picture with my handle, which is at jfpenauthor, and you can tag it whether it's fiction or nonfiction, so at jfpenauthor, I can add that picture to my shop. So if you enjoy one of my books, please take a picture and tag me on Instagram at jfpenauthor. Thank you. Plus, I had a personal best this week health-wise, and I wanted to share it because, of course, I've got the, the Healthy Writer book, um, also the Relaxed Author book, which both of which talk about uh, the importance of physical health. And uh, this week, I deadlifted 85 kilograms, which I'm very proud of. That is my personal best. Last year, I was more focused on stamina for the, for the long walks, the pilgrimage walks. This year, I'm going for strength. Uh, so I'm really proud of that. So weight training is important for all of us, but especially for women in mid life. So yes, and uh, fasteo process prevention. Plus, I love lifting and it makes me feel really good. So I'm not just lifting for my future self, I'm lifting because I really enjoy it. And if you enjoy lifting heavy objects, then uh, <laughs> you'll know um, why, why it's so fun. There you go. I'm heading to Seville or Sevilla this week in, in Spain to speak at the 20 Book Spain conference. And I'm really looking forward to meet some of the European indie authors. And of course, any excuse to hang out in Andalusia is welcome. Now, I love Spain. I almost moved there back in the 90s. And I particularly love the Moorish architecture of that area, that southwest area, which also features in my thriller Gates of Hell. And I'm going to take the book and I'm going to take some pictures, hopefully, in different settings, different Spanish settings. So if you like to see pictures, keep an eye on Instagram and Facebook at jfpenauthor or Twitter at the Creative Pen. So thanks for your emails and tweets and comments. Don Elliott sent a picture from his backpacking trip at minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit, um, very chilly, in the desert of eastern Oregon in the Pacific Northwest. Looks like fun. Deb Potter opposite side of the world on the south coast of Wellington, New Zealand. There is big weather going on and the sea is hurling massive waves up at me. I'm listening to your podcast in my royalty red rover. Yes, a car I bought with my royalties. It's the first new car I've ever owned. That's awesome, Deb. Great stuff. And Will Norman on YouTube said, thank you for this important discussion. Uh, and this was the one with Catherine on AI and for respecting different opinions on AI. I've been vacuuming up information. I've tried AI Voice, 11 labs, who are pretty good but expensive. Totally agree on 11 labs. I'm looking at them as well. But yeah, I mean, it's still, still pricey, but it is very good. Mid-journey, and I recently upgraded to GPT-4. Thanks for your recommendation. Listening to your tech episodes and updates reminds me to consider ethics behind this emerging technology. Sadly, some people will lose their jobs, as history has shown, but I can't help but see a plethora of opportunity. And yeah, I mean, yes, there's going to be shifting in jobs, um, some faster than others, for sure. But 
indeed there are me- there's much 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 opportunity ahead and as i said to me it is about the quality of your questions your curiosity your desire to learn new things i think this is one of those periods of time where learning new things is going to be really important <laughs> So you can tweet me at The Creative Pen, send me pictures of where you're listening or email me joanna at thecreativepen.com or leave a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. So appropriately today, uh, the show is brought to you by Kobo Writing Life, Kobo's free, fast and easy self-publishing platform. KWL was built by authors for authors and their team of dedicated book lovers is always working hard to help you reach new readers around the world. With this in mind, Kobo has developed a way for authors to reach audiobook listeners with direct audiobook upload. You can now publish an audiobook right in your Kobo Writing Life account as easily as you can publish an ebook. You can create a customizable table of contents, set the price in 16 different currencies, and even set up a pre-order for your audiobook with no date limitation. There's no exclusivity and you will always have control of your pricing. Once your audiobook is published, there are lots of promotional opportunities. Kobo even has customizable social assets that you can download to share on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. If you're a KWL author and don't yet have access to the audiobooks tab or the promotional mailing list, email the team at writinglife at kobo.com and they will get you sorted. Don't forget, you can purchase audiobooks on Kobo.com and they will download directly to your Kobo app or e-reader. Many of the Kobo devices have audiobook compatibility, including the Sage, the Libra 2 and the Ellipsa, allowing readers to maintain ebooks and audiobook libraries in one place. Start your free audiobook trial today. And if you want to learn more about KWL, check out the Kobo Writing Life podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts and find them on social. Create your free account today at kobo.com forward slash writing life. So yes, I am. Uh, I've been on Kobo Writing Life since the beginning, <laughs> like many years ago now. Goodness me! Uh, and it's always lovely to see the Kobo team at various events, and uh, so and they're very friendly. So go talk to Tara or one of the team uh, about how you can get your books onto Kobo and make the most of that promotional tab as well. It's on my. Uh, reminders every couple of weeks to go in and submit my books for as many things as I possibly can. (laughs) They don't all get accepted, but it's well worth doing. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time as ever is sponsored by my patrons and uh, especially all the extra AI stuff. I'm especially grateful to patrons who've been supporting the show for years, many of you for years now, and also for months and for days if you're new. (laughs) It demonstrates you find the show useful and want it to continue. Thanks to new patrons this week, Christian Birch, Jessica Noel, or Noel, Meryl's Memoirs, James Hazelwood, Tom Holbrook, and Don Elliott. And if you support the show on Patreon, you get my extra monthly Q&A for patrons only and I answer your questions, which is around 45 minutes of extra audio and you also get the backlist. You can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Merrin Glover is the award-winning author of historical fiction and narrative non-fiction nature books, as well as writing plays and radio drama. Her latest book is The Hidden Fires, A Cairngorm's Journey with Nan Shepherd. So welcome to the show, Merrin. Thank you, Joanna. It's just a real joy to be here to chat with you today. Oh yeah, this is a fascinating topic. But first up, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing and publishing. Well, like probably most of your listeners, I have loved words since I was very little, um, loved books, reading. Um, but I grew up in South Asia, in Nepal and India and Pakistan. My parents were working in linguistics and literacy. So being surrounded by other languages all of the time, I guess that really added to the sense of love of, of words and communication and language. I was always talking to myself as a child. And I think as I've grown up and become a writer, it's just the adult version of talking to yourself in lots of ways. And I wanted more siblings. I'm the youngest of two, and my parents didn't comply. So I had to invent all of the other 10 children in my family. <laughs> <laughs> I'm entertained. So yeah, I just always loved 
stories, but also really fascinated by inhabiting experiences beyond my own. So I think that's a big part of where my writing has come from. I went to university in Australia and I did English drama and dance there. And part of the drama course there, we were always devising material, making up plays and shows and things like that. So in a sense, that kind of led to my first major piece of writing work, which was a stage play after I'd finished university. But that actually came out of doing a lot of reminiscence work with elderly people living with dementia and capturing a lot of their life stories. And that became the ground of this first play because it was about a woman with dementia and her sister who cares for her. And that was a stage play initially, but then it was adapted for BBC Radio Scotland. And so the plays that I went on to write after that were all radio plays. And so, yeah, that was kind of the first sort of major piece of writing that, that went out there. And then I did one of those um, correspondence courses in, in writing that you can get and then shows how old I am because it was in the days when you literally had to type out your work and send it off to the tutor and then they would send it back. Uh, and I was back working in Kathmandu at the time, so it was airmail. That would take weeks to, <laughs> to hear back from the tutor. And the early phases of that course were journalism. So then I had some little articles in the Guardian Weekly, Letter from Nepal and things like that, and a few other pieces of journalism that sort of came out of doing that course, which was really valuable. But it also made me realize that what I loved writing was more imaginative material, was, was stories, the stuff that I wanted to make up from my head. And so that led to, to my next kind of major project, which was a series of short stories set in Nepal, um, which have been, most of them have been as individuals published in anthologies or competitions or broadcast on the radio. And I think at some point I would love to, to bring out the collection of, of that early set of stories. So yeah, that was the early stages. And then I went on to, to write novels. And now this, this nonfiction book, um, The Hidden Fires, A King Gorm's Journey with Nan Shepherd. I love this. So you're not sticking within a genre at all. No. <laughs> you, you have basically done almost everything. Shame. I mean, yeah, no, I mean, that's brilliant because look, to be honest, this is the creative process, right? It's, it's what I'm interested in this. I'm going to write this and I'm going to see where it goes and that it's unfolded this way. But tell us, like, why did you write The Hidden Fires? Because for me, it, it seems it's about... Well, it's related to the Nan Shepherd's book and some people might not have heard of her. So can you talk about what drew you to Nan Shepherd and why write a book that is based so much on someone else's work? Mm, sure. So I guess the simple first answer to the question is because my publisher of my last novel invited me to submit a proposal for this book. So to fill in some background for the listeners, Nan Shepherd was an author from Aberdeen. She was publishing novels and poetry in the late 1920s, early 30s. She was a very recognised figure in the Scottish literary renaissance at the time, a modernist author. And she was very well respected back then. Um, some of the reviews compared her with Virginia Woolf. She would be reviewed over in America as well as here. But then there was this period of a long time when she didn't publish any more books and she kind of fell out of recognition beyond the university literature departments but she's most famous now for her non-fiction book, The Living Mountain, which is about the Cairngorm Mountains in the Highlands of Scotland. Uh, she'd been a hill walker and a lover of mountains since childhood, but she wrote most of that book during the Second World War. And then post-war, she sent off one query letter to a publisher about it who declined to even see the manuscript. And she put it away in a drawer for 30 years and then eventually in 1977, when she was 84, she took it back out, reread it, and then she self-published it by paying for a print run of 3,000 copies through Aberdeen University Press, because at the time they were actually printers um, rather than taking on publishing costs themselves. So that's something a lot of people don't necessarily realize is that she did actually self-publish it to begin with. But she wasn't very good at marketing and promotion. And by the time she died, four years later, there were hundreds of copies still sitting in boxes. And she probably had no premonition of what would become of them because it's now been translated into over 16 languages, sold millions of copies. 
and has spurned countless works in response from academic papers to art exhibitions, musical albums, dance productions, and of course, more books like mine. <laughs> so for me, I, I guess I responded to my publisher's invitation initially by really thinking about it because she's so well respected internationally, but particularly in Scotland, like the Royal Bank of Scotland, five pound note has her face on it. Mm. You know, in a way, it's kind of daunting to respond to somebody like her, to, to her writing and particularly to such a well-loved and famous book. But I felt there was really an interesting vein there to follow. And that was the very unique way in which my life intersects with hers, in that we have some things in common we're both women walking and writing in the Cairngorms area, which is where I now live. We've both loved mountains since childhood. But I come to these ones from a very different background because my childhood mountains were the Himalayas. And also I'm now writing 70 years later and a lot has changed um, in the this area and also for women you know, being in the outdoors. So my book just charts our very different routes into this same place and looks at the ways in which I, in contrast to her having been so earthed in this area in Aberdeenshire and, and then in the Cairngorms, how I also can come to this place and find a sense of home and a sense of belonging. And in her, a kind of kindred spirit across time in what sort of emerged as a conversation between us. So it became a real sort of adventure in itself to to not just follow her, but to kind of talk with her across time. Mm. A couple of things to follow up on that. So first of all, you said she so she self-published at age 84 and then she mm. died and then the book got out there. So how did it get out there? Was it a child or a relation who got it out there or was it just, you know, somebody stumbled across it? Well, she had given away a lot of copies. It was reviewed in a few places and well-reviewed, but I guess it landed fairly quietly because she hadn't been prominent as an author for, for a fair chunk of time at that point. So there wasn't great fanfare and noise. And I guess because she didn't have a publisher doing much marketing for her and she was not a good marketer of her own books. And she had always been great at championing, championing the writing of others, particularly the S Scottish authors of the time. She did a lot of reviewing herself and um, making sure that the Scottish literary canon was being taught in the, the teacher's college where she taught. But she just wasn't great at pushing herself and her own work. So, But enough copies, I think, had got out there. And there are people that still have some of those original copies, and they're now worth a lot of money. But, you know, I think it, it was recognised, as I said, it was included and studied in universities and so forth. It just gradually gained ground, but it wasn't really till more recently where some more prominent figures cast light on it. So Robert McFarlane in particular mm. um, really championed her work and he has written about her. He made a BBC program, a, a television program, Walking in the Cairngorms and, and talking about the Living Mountain. And it was things like that that really then meant that her book took off. But that wasn't till about 2011. Um, oh, okay. it, it really started to accelerate this interest in her. Um and yeah, so all around the world, there will be university departments doing all kinds of conferences and events about her writing. And it's amazing who you bump into um, who have discovered her. Robert McFarland did a Twitter book group during lockdown at one point about the Living Mountain. And I was astonished by how many people all around the world had read and loved that book. Uh, and it has, it's one of the reasons why I think it's becoming such a classic, is it because it has such a capacity to to speak to people in all kinds of different contexts, regardless of the landscape that they are in. It gives mm. them a sense of the vitality of the more than human world of, of nature and our place in it. Yeah, it's interesting. I, feel, I mean, there's been a huge renaissance in nature writing. I mean, you and I are here in the UK. I'm not sure about in the US, but you walk into High Street Waterstones here and I found your book. I tweeted you the other day, but it was there's whole sections on nature writing now. And just it's almost like it's become a huge genre. So mm -hmm. is that why the publisher invited you to to write a book is because it has become such a huge genre. So what why do you think that is? And also what are the hallmarks of this nature writing genre? 
uh, in terms of hallmarks, probably controversy now, actually. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It, it is a burgeoning genre. And but I guess what happens with any genre that becomes hugely popular is and then you will start to get critics within it and of it. And so there's been some quite heated debate about what it does and what it's for. Um, and some people feel that certain aspects of nature writing can be too much navel gazing, can be too much about um, people on their own introverted spiritual search, but not actually grappling with the challenges that the natural world face in this day and age. So you will get all, there is a fair bit of controversy around it. But I think in terms of your question as to why it's become so huge, I think there's a lot of factors at play. And I think part of it is that in what we kind of call the West, although that's a bit of a clumsy term, we, there is a profound sense of disconnection and fragmentation socially and emotionally. And although all of our modern tech does help us connect really well on one level, on another level, on a deeper level, we've kind of lost the gift of presence, of actually being wholly physically present to one another and to the world around us. And I think finding our place again in the natural world literally grounds us, it earths us again. So I think that's a big part of that appeal. Secondly, I think because we face these massive climate and biodiversity crises, there is that sense of something deeply precious and fundamental to our survival that is being lost, that is threatened, and an urgent need to hold on to it, to restore it and to restore ourselves. So this writing, these books are like a testament to the value of what we have and its precariousness. I think also there's such a yearning for healing of ourselves, of our world, and a recognition that we can only really do that together, not in isolation. And I think it speaks to a kind of spiritual longing to find home, to, to actually recognize that we belong here. We are of the earth. And one of the challenges around nature writing is the idea that we as humans venture into nature as though it's something that's different to us or separate from us, whereas actually we are of nature. We belong on the earth. We're not aliens or a foreign invasive species. We are nature too. And I think a big part of the nature writing is to find our place in, in that whole world and what our relationship with it, which is so fraught, you know. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think these are all some of the reasons and more why, why it's had such a resurgence. Mm. It's so interesting, though, and you mentioned the controversy. I think I read certain types of books. I mean, I always think of the nature books I read as travel. So, for example, I haven't walked in the Cairngorms. So, you know, looking through your book, there's obviously amazing descriptions of this place. And I, I can see how your sort of background in, in Nepal has, has come in there. But it's so funny. I was just thinking you mentioned Robert McFarlane, his book mm -hmm. Underland, which is just incredible, one of probably one of my favorite books. And also Merlin Sheldrake's Entangled, which is about fungi. Both of these books to me are completely foreign. And although I agree with you that, yes, we are animals, we exist in nature, we are part of nature. When I kind of read these books for the same reason I might read a thriller, which is escapism into a different world, and I read a lot of nonfiction for that reason, to learn about things I don't know about. So it's interesting. I mean, there, I don't pick up the nature books where I might feel something is familiar or I don't want to read the end of eco, <laughs> the sort of depressing yeah. ones. Yes. I want I read for the sense of escape. I mean, that's my personal choice as a reader. But what do you think, given that you're kind of, this is a travel book for anyone who hasn't been to the Cairngorms, right? I mean, is, is it more nature, travel than nature, really? Yeah, well, yeah, those are really interesting questions. And I guess those are the sorts of things that publishers are trying to make decisions about in terms of where they locate books, whether it's travel or whether it's nature writing or whether it's memoir, because because my book does tell a little bit of my story as well in terms of how it relates particularly to mountains and to some of these experiences. But it's one of the interesting things about The Living Mountain is it's been famously difficult to classify because on the one hand, 
there is nature writing in it. But I I feel like in more than being just about the life of nature, it is about the nature of life. It's profoundly philosophical. It really is exploring the ideas and what it means to be human and what it means to be. You know, the last chapter of The Living Mountain is called Being. And so, and that was one of the things that really interested me in responding to her work, partly for me being brought up in South Asia, surrounded by major world religions. And I know that's been a real fascination for you as well in all of your writing. And, and it is for me, and these are some of the ideas that Nan Shepherd taps into. She talks at the very end of The Living Mountain about how she understands to some measure why the Buddhist goes on pilgrimage to the mountain. And I know about your fascination with pilgrimage, and I've loved your book about it as well. So that's something that I I think is part of what's definitely part of her book, but also my own writing is, what does pilgrimage mean? And where is pilgrimage something deeper and different to just travel or to just observing nature or just going for a walk? So there's those philosophical, spiritual ideas that underpin her work and mine in response to it. And I think you're right about that sense of escape. For me, it's partly that, but it's also about discovery. And that's a hugely important thing in Nan Shepard's writing is what it means to know something, how you come to to understand more about a place or about people or about anything, because it's far more than just intellectual um, acquisition of information. It's far more than just ticking off a list on a bird ID chart or I've been here, I've done that. It's so much about a dynamic relationship and what she calls a process of living. So even though there is on the one hand this desire to go somewhere completely different and completely new, both in our travel and in our reading, she also challenges us to go back to the same places and to keep seeing new things there. And so she says, for example, about the Cairngorms, these hills hold astonishment for me. However much I walk on them, they're new every time I go. You know, so um, so it's both that journeying out that you're talking about, but it's also that journeying in and finding that there is always something more to still know, to discover, and that the mystery only deepens. We never complete it. Um, so, yeah, I think I think there's that kind of push-pull around nature writing, the, the, the venturing out into the unknown and the plumbing the deeper depths of our own humanity. Mm. Then I wanted to ask you about the difficulties of, I mean, you quoted Nan Shepherd there, but you have your own book, about the Cairngorms, which you said is a conversation with her book. But what was the difficulty in writing your own descriptions? Because you must have imbibed so much of her words that these quotes come up when you're writing. So how do you then describe a mountain that she's described? It just seems like a real challenge. So where does Nan end and Merrin begin? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I was really aware right from the outset that I did not want to, and there was no point trying to write a copycat version of her book because she's done it and it's beautiful and you couldn't do better. So it was really about finding my own story, but also recognizing, and I think it's very clear to me very early on, that although I love her book and her writing, we have very different voices. And so in one sense, that was quite straightforward, that even though I do refer to her a lot and quote her a lot, I do think you get a sense of a conversation between two quite different women with quite different voices. And I think it was also just important for me to be free to tell my own story and to to look at the ways in which we not only intersect, but we diverge. And I have a huge respect for her, but I don't always agree with her, and that, nor do I always agree with the narratives about her. So some of the time I'm challenging some of the received wisdom or some of the ideas that are out there. And that is part of what kept it stimulating for me and made it my own book and gave me a sense of ownership about it. Um, But I think she would have loved that because she had this incredible intellectual rigor and endless curiosity. And I think she would have really invited other people coming to the mountains and discovering new things and sparking off her, even if that takes them to different directions. So, uh, yeah, actually, it proved to be a really stimulating challenge 
but yeah, recognizing that it had to be my story was a big part of that. Mm. And in a way, also, I was reflecting on the authors who co-write with bigger names as such, because mm. some people are like, in terms of fiction, people are like, oh, if I co-write with James Patterson, for example, that will mean my books will sell. But often what seems to happen is that's not what happens at all. It's that people still remember the big name. So mm. do you feel like your other work has sold more or is it too early to tell in terms of have, have do you think people will find you through picking up this book because of her? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> As we're talking, it's just been two weeks since The Hidden Fires has come out. And undoubtedly, there is a lot of interest because of Nan Shepherd. That that name opens doors unquestionably. And it's great. It's great to ride in on her coattails <laughs> and see where that takes us. But it'll be interesting because it is nonfiction. And my other two books are novels. One of the most recent one, the novel of Stone and Sky, is set in this same area. And really, it was a two book deal with the publisher for the novel, which I had already written, and this nonfiction book, which they had invited me to, to propose. So it was a two book deal because it was like they're both Cairngorm's books. And so I guess I hope that as people discover one or the other, then they will be interested to see what else I have written about the Cairngorms. And then the one that's set in India, a house called Askaval, is also set in the mountains. So in a sense, the mountains are kind of a thread through all three books. But yeah, like you, I, I write across genres. So I'm kind of earlier in that journey. I don't know where that will go and, um, you know, what, what people will discover. But yeah, I'm looking forward to finding out. <laughs> mm. And then it's interesting too, again, you said the publisher invited you to submit a proposal and then obviously wanted you to write that book. But I was just checking. So she died in 1981. So that book is obviously still in copyright. So what happened around the permissions for like using her name, for example, is that the publisher who publishes her book or how does that work? Or is it just fair use because you're commenting on her work? I ended up having to produce a massive spreadsheet with the help of my dear dad, who was visiting last summer, in which we basically listed every single quote that we used. Um, because I didn't just quote from The Living Mountain, I quoted from her three novels, and I quoted from her poetry, as well as correspondence and other things like that. So The Living Mountain is published by Canongate, so we had to get permission. Uh, the publishers got permissions for all of those, and we literally had to submit all of the quotes that we used. And similarly, for the other books, the novels are now published by Canongate, so they hold, held the rights to those. Poetry, it's a different publisher. And then some of her other work, the executor of her estate, she had no children of her own, but there was a family that she was very, very close to. And so it's a member of that family that Erlen Clouston, who is executor of her estate, and incredibly helpful and generous to all of the many people who've come along wanting to find out more about her and respond to her work so he also gave permissions for the things that he has the rights to so yeah so that's a complicated process and something people need to be aware of if you're wanting to quote extensively from somebody else's work you do need to get permission for that and sometimes that there may be a, a fee involved yes I mean and for people listening I mean if you'd have quoted one line from her original full-length book that would have been fair use but the extent to which you've worked with that material or even if it had been one line from a poem that would have been an entirely different matter so people listening you can't just go and do this <laughs> you do have, uh, unless it's someone who's you know well out of copyright but I also just wanted to ask about your own writing process about the Cairngorms. And you mentioned that's in one of your novels as well. So where, how do you write about a place? Do you take photos? Do you write when you're moving? Do you dictate? How do you write sense of place? Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And I've tried different things. I do have a sort of like A5 nature journal, but it, it's kind of a little big for taking up on big hill walks and things like that, and a little bit cumbersome. So when I'm out on a mountain walk, particularly in, in the conditions in the Cairngorms, I've got, um, I take a much smaller notebook and then just try and scribble things in it as we go. But then sometimes when you're up there in the wind and the rain and the cold and the snow, you know, even, even to be writing notes just is impractical. So I do, I take lots and lots of photos and then, I try as soon as I get back from a walk to type up notes from memory and from the photos as quickly as possible. 
to recall it. There was one walk that I did up there where my phone battery died because I was I was sleeping out overnight, and by the length by the end of the second day, the phone battery had gone. Uh, but in a way, it was really good because I just knew I had to observe. I really had to look closely and remember. When it, there's a, a, a Simone Weil quote, um, attention is the purest and rarest form of generosity. And I just felt really challenged to learn to give my full attention to the places that I was in and the things that I was looking at uh, so that I would remember them more closely. So it did mean I often was walking a lot slower than I might otherwise in order to to capture those things. Um, but yeah, so it's been a, a combination of different techniques depending on the actual environment I'm in and how much clutter I can carry with me along the way. Um, but yeah, learning to look closely is probably the most important thing. Mm. And then one of the things I'm absolutely fascinated with is the concept of truth with a small T and truth with a big T. So truth being forensically exactly what happened and truth with big T is sort of trying to convey the deeper meaning of whatever you're talking about. So as in, did every single thing happen exactly in that way or have you put things together and changed things? And because this is the difficulty with memoir or even a sense of place is, you know, things change or you have to put things together. Or So what do you think about this difference between truth and truth with a big T, capital? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting one. And one of the things about The Living Mountain is that she doesn't set out particular walk routes. She doesn't tell the, even the account of an entire day or an entire walk. She just kind of ranges across the hills. She dips in and out of all kinds of different ideas and themes and locations. So in a way, it kind of gave me liberty to do a similar thing. Although one of the things that my publisher had asked me to look at was a way of grounding the work a bit because hers is so sort of all over the place and esoteric to some degree you often don't know where she is so they were interested in an account that was a little bit more pinned down in terms of location and the actual walk involved but because I have been in the hills quite a few times some of the walks I've done many times um, yes yeah, so you're right sometimes you just piece together a variety of different experiences into one account or sometimes like, for example, a chapter on the plateau, I just took a number of different experiences on the plateau and sort of threaded them together. Um, but they were different seasons, different times, different trips, or sometimes one trip. There's parts of it in different chapters of the book just because that's where they belong. So, yeah, I think you're right that you definitely do not want to be misleading people or giving misinformation in any way. But sometimes for an aesthetic, you need to weave things together in a certain pattern. And as you say, that is a truer account simply because of the way it holds together. Mm, absolutely. Now, I wanted to come back to earlier. You talked about writing the stage plays and the radio drama. And I wondered, like now there's a renaissance in that type of production, I guess, where there's full cast audio productions on Audible and Spotify and BBC Sounds and all this type of thing. And, and I wondered if you're thinking of maybe turning your works into these things or writing that again. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, so writing plays is just kind of wonderfully different uh, to writing prose, particularly fiction. And I think part of it is that as novelists, we can be control freaks. We like to decide everything. But when you write a play, you then have to hand that script over to the director and the actors to put flesh on the bones and, and they give it its own life. And their, their interpretation of it may be different to yours, but that's part of the magic of, of drama. You know, and if you think about all the different versions we get of Shakespeare plays now, some of which would probably make him spin in his grave or just <laughs> for sure. laughter or whatever. <laughs> but that's drama. That's theatre. That's the way it works. And you have to allow directors and actors to, to do their work, too. But in a way, I, I think even though I said as, fiction, as novelists, we can be control freaks, we also have to accept that that's what happens in the head of the reader they also bring flesh to it. They bring a voice to it. They bring their interpretation to it too. So there's a sense in which as a writer, you just release that work and you have to let other people inhabit it in, in their own way. But writing drama definitely teaches you that discipline of letting it go to, to other people. Also, I guess a di there's a difference in that with drama, particularly radio drama, so much of it has to be conveyed through dialogue. 
And you just don't have all these luxurious, long descriptive passages that, <laughs> that you might mm. have as a prose writer. And But they, they say radio paints the best pictures because what you're doing is you're creating a soundscape, you're creating a structure where your listener, it's filling their head, they're seeing everything. And you just want to give them just enough that their own imagination then it's like something vacuum packed and in their own imagination it just opens out like a parachute and it it fills the world for them so that's one of the really exciting dynamics actually i would say about radio drama is the way it enters the head but so for me i i would the my first novel a house called Askaval, the one that's set in india um it was brought out by a traditional publisher and then that publisher went bust so i got the rights back uh, and that is kind of how my self-publishing journey began with bringing that one out myself. Uh, and that's been great. It's been really fantastic to learn so much about that process and that world, and particularly from people like yourself, Joanna, and this amazingly supportive, energetic community of indie authors. So I am planning to commission somebody to to read that. And she's somebody that I actually went to school with in India. And she was a year above me in school and just a fantastic actress. And she does do kind of audio work. And so I just got in touch recently and said, yeah, would you be up for this? We're in conversation about that at the moment. And we'll probably do some kind of Kickstarter or something to fund it. But yeah, that's quite exciting to be able to, to take that book to that next level of audio. Because as you say, it, it's huge. And I, I know several people who say to me, Oh, I'm not much of a reader, but I love listening to books, mm. and your books in audio. And yeah, so that's definitely the way I want to go with it. No, it's interesting because, of course, a straight single actor audiobook read is quite different to a radio drama where you have multiple cast members plus sound effects, Absolutely. basically. I mean, those are quite different things too, aren't they? And yeah, yeah I mean, writing, have you thought about adapting into a radio drama? Um, not really. Gosh, I just think that would be quite complex. I mean, that book spans 70 years of history in India, including partition. And uh, I mean, I think it would be amazing. <laughs> I just quail at <laughs> the prospect. Not yet, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. But that's interesting in itself because what you're basically saying there is not every project is adaptable or is designed for that. It's like when I pitched um, my Matt Walker series to a film agent and they were like, look, this is a really, really expensive project. This, you know, to do this, <laughs> this trilogy would be very expensive and no one's going to do that for a first time <laughs> pitch. And so their response was write something cheaper. and that's kind of what you're saying is it's like if you were to do a a radio drama it would be cheaper essentially than doing 70 years of Indian history (laughs) yeah yeah I mean but that said I mean you can do incredible things on radio much more cheaply than you can with tv or film because you don't have to actually summon up millions of people you can with the use of sound effects and all those kinds of things you can actually create extraordinary experiences on the radio so vastly cheaper than 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 visual media so yeah never say never (laughs) yeah I just think it's a very it's another interesting way of looking at our work given the rise of audio for example one of my favorite audio books is World War Z we say Z Americans say Z World War Z the oral history of the zombie war and it's fantastic because each chapter is a different narrator from a different country and it must have been so expensive to do but obviously that book was a real hit and there's a movie and everything but the book the audio drama is completely different to the movie with Brad Pitt and again completely different to the book so I think these types of adaptations are just fascinating um that's right and it is mm. an adaptation isn't it because an audiobook reading is just a straight reading of the text from Mm. the novel so that is fairly straightforward but you know to do a radio drama from it you have to break it apart and make something completely new. You, you And that's the whole thing you find sometimes people get really annoyed with adapt, film adaptations of books and things because it, they don't feel like it's not, wasn't the original story and they left out this and they added that or whatever. But it's a different beast, you know, and mm. film adaptations are terrible, but it's a t- completely different work of art and it, it works in a different way. So you, in a way you take that whole story, but you remake it. For a different medium so that in some ways is almost more the challenge than 
you know, that the cast and uh, the production of it is is reimagining a story that I lived with for years in the making of. It took me a long time to write that first novel and to then actually perhaps also to kind of get the creative distance from it myself to see how to take it apart and rebuild it as a different thing. Mm. Uh, in some ways, it's almost easier for a different person to do an adaptation sometimes because of the distance that you need from it. Yeah, well, it's interesting. So as you mentioned, it took you a long time to do that novel. You're emotionally connected to it. And that's the one where the publisher went bust. (laughs) So tell us about that, because that must have been really hard experience. A lot of authors kind of, I think, consider like, oh, I'll sign a publishing deal and that's it for the rest of my life. I'm done. Or I got an agent and I'm done. But these things happen and happen actually quite a lot. (laughs) so tell us how was that experience how did you adapt and get the rights back yeah I mean it was a huge journey with that that first book because it took me a long time to write and in the process of writing it I was in the really fortunate experience that I had two different agents approach me which seems like the absolute dream come true but one of them through discussion and looking at the draft of the novel decided it wasn't for her the other one took it on but after 18 months of sending it hither and thither wasn't able to get a publisher for it and so eventually I just sort of had to say to her well I don't think there's anything more you or I can do for each other thank you so much I think I'll just have to take it back and work out what to do next you know so that was pretty devastating for me and and for her she'd done all that work for 18 months but she hadn't earned a penny from that process yet Uh, and and for me I was at absolute rock bottom then thinking I've just worked on this for years and I just don't know what to do. I felt utterly, utterly lost and devastated. And so then, but then kind of returned to a final rewrite, saw this new independent Scottish publisher had emerged, sent it off to them. They took it on. So yes, that was like incredibly exciting to finally get this breakthrough. They won Scottish Publisher of the Year the following year. They're really going places. But Yeah, but like as happens with a lot of publishers, particularly smaller ones, it's a really hard, hard game and they went under. Uh, That was a stressful process for all of the writers involved. But ultimately, for me, it was a liberating process because my book at that point had been out for three years. So to come out in hardback in 2014, paperback 2015, and the publisher went bust in 2017. So in a way, they weren't probably going to do very much more for it. The reality is it had had its time. It hadn't done fabulously well. You know, it just hadn't got very much attention when it first came out. That's the other sort of gutting thing as a new writer, because you just think, wow, it's all going to happen. And (laughs) kind of nothing happens, you know. So, yeah. So in a way, it was a liberating thing because then it meant, okay, I I can do with this what I want to, what I need to, because really nobody else is ever going to care as much about your book as you are. And publishers have got other priorities. They've got lots of other authors. They've got lots of other books. And unless yours is really going places and really earning big money for them, they have to move on. They've got to focus on the next thing. They're a business. They're not a charity. So in a sense, I once kind of picked myself up and dusted myself off from from that whole publisher going under. It was the opportunity to then, after I'd sold off the, the last of the paperbacks, to then republish it myself, my own imprint, my own designer uh, for the cover and all those kinds of things. So that's been a great opportunity and I've learned a lot about it. And it means going forward, I feel I've got more choices that there are certain projects like the Hidden Fires project and the last novel of Stone and Sky where having had a publisher has been fantastic. And my publisher, Polygon Berlin, are one of Scotland's biggest independent publishers, and they're brilliant, an an amazing team, and I absolutely love all the work that they put in. Uh, But they're a small enough publisher that they they answer my emails, they talk to me, we we have meetings, they're really lovely. You know, it's not like a big publisher where you can get completely lost and feel like nobody cares about you. They're the reverse, they're wonderful. So I'm really glad to have that experience, but I'm also glad to have learned enough about self-publishing that there are some projects I think like, for example, my collection of short stories. Short story collections don't really sell very well for publishers. Mm. And it's often just something that they're not prepared to take on because they just don't get enough back from it. So that's something I think, well, I can do that. I know I, I know how to do that now. I've learned those skills. So I've got that choice. And I think that's a really privileged place to be. And I'm really thankful for that. 
Fantastic. Well, lots for people to go look at. So where can people find you and your books online? Marin Glover. <laughs> as far <laughs> as I know, I'm the only one out there. So my website is maringlover.com. My first name is a Welsh name. So it's spelled M-E-R-R-Y-N. And Glover is G-L-O-V-E-R. So yeah, maringlover.com is the website. And then I'm on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And you can email me. I really do love hearing from readers. That's just one of the great joys. That just feels like it's what it's all for when a book reaches somebody and they love it and they get back to me. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Marin. That was great. Oh, and thank you, Joanna. You have been such an inspiration to me and to so many of us. So I love your podcast and I love what you do for, for the community. So thank you. So I hope you found the discussion with Marin interesting and that it gave you some encouragement around your writing journey. Coming up later this week, I have an in-between episode with Chris Banks, the CEO of Pro Writing Aid, about how the tool is incorporating aspects of generative AI to help your writing improve even more. Then next Monday, I'm discussing the challenges of small press publishing with John Barton from Vertebrates Publishing, a British adventure niche publisher, and his lessons learned have a lot of parallels with the indie author business. In the meantime, happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.